my family loves astronomy, and in the last several months, there have been lots of great things to see, and also recently, some great things to hear. You may have noticed, and you can go to NASA's website, not right now, but later, you can go to NASA's website and see the latest images, but also sounds coming back to us from Mars, from our latest rover to land on Mars, the rover Perseverance. The rover is sending back not only incredible images and videos from the red planet, but also sounds. The, the one that's, that, that you can see right now and listen to on the website is of what they call a Martian breeze. And it is eerie to hear this sound on another planet, the red planet that has had so much mystique for us for so many years. It's a sound of something from beyond, and it is really something to hear. As we move into John 11 today, we're going to be hearing, seeing something that comes from beyond. But I also want to remind us of where we've been. Particularly last week, we were in John 10. And in John 10, Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep. He also says, I am the good shepherd. And after this incredible teaching, something happens that we see happen to Jesus a lot, not only in John's gospel, but also in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When he teaches and preaches some of his best content, immediately the religious leaders show up and they have conflict with him. At the end of John 10, they ask him after he gave this amazing teaching, by what authority do you say these things? On whose authority do you call yourself the good shepherd? And do you say that you have been sent to us by God? But what's amazing at the end of John 10 is that Jesus moves away from that conflict. He ends up going to a place called Anon near Salim. If that sounds familiar, we heard that in John chapter 3. It was the place where John the Baptist had been, had been baptizing people right when Jesus began his ministry. And so Jesus goes to this place, but now it's not John, it's Jesus himself. He's preaching and his teaching, and John 10 ends by saying, many people in that place believed. But John's also helping us understand what's going to come next in chapter 11 geographically. Because Anon near Salim is a long way from Jerusalem, which means it's also a long way from a village called Bethany, where everything starts here in John 11. In fact, John 11 begins in verse 1 with a family that Jesus loved. We began a little bit later in the chapter, but John begins by telling us a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And Mary, this particular Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who had poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. You may remember another scene in the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It comes in Luke chapter 10, and along with being one of the most memorable stories in the Bible, it may be one of the most entertaining as well. I'm not going to read it, but rather describe it. But it's on the screen for you in Luke 10, starting in verse 38. This earlier visit when Jesus had come to the home of Mary and Martha, Mary chose to sit at Jesus' feet, taking full advantage of the teaching moment before her. But the older sister, Martha, was busy 
running around the kitchen and the dining area, making sure everything was perfect for the meal. After all, Jesus was coming to eat in their house. Who wouldn't prepare and want everything to be perfect when Jesus comes to dinner? As the time for the meal continued to draw near, Martha grew irritated with Mary's lack of help and finally said to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. But Jesus replied, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing matters right now, and Mary has chosen what is better. And it will not be taken from her. Mary, in this story in Luke, had chosen to put aside the to-do list and the details which were really important to Martha, and many of us would probably say would have been really important to us, to put all of those things aside in order to give her full attention to Jesus. And Jesus took notice, and he praised her for it, and even still today, we remember what Jesus said about Mary. I love the title of a book by Joanna Weaver. She relates this story to our own cultural challenges, and she says, we need to have a Mary heart in a Martha world. We get it. This is the same family, a family that Jesus knew well. And in verse 3, back to John 11, John says, the sisters sent word to Jesus, though he was far away. Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Now, notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say this sickness, this illness is not fatal. What he said was, this sickness will not end in death. And that's how it's not going to end. It's not going to end in death. And what Jesus says next reminds us of what he said in John 9 when they came across a man who had been born blind and Jesus said, believe me, in just a minute you will see that all of this is for the glory of God. And here Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. No, instead, God is going to be glorified. Through his son, in a moment, God's name will be glorified. And Another thing I note in this story, if we think back to everything we've been reading in John so far, and hopefully you've been following along with our reading plan and reading through the Gospel of John as we go through this series, we've met a lot of other people in John's Gospel. Going back to John chapter 2, there was a couple getting married in Cana, and yet John never told us their names. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well, but we're not told her name either. The man whom Jesus healed in John 5, the disabled man near the pool of Bethesda, we don't know his name, nor do we know the name of the man who was born blind to whom Jesus gave sight. But John goes over and above in this chapter to keep telling us the names, Martha, Mary, and Jesus. Why? I think verse 5 is the reason because Jesus loved them. Martha and her sister and Lazarus, Jesus loved them. And of course, Jesus loves everybody. But in this particular case, I think what we see is a, a long-standing friendship that was growing deeper. 
and the very personal nature of Jesus' friendship with this family, this trio, who are a strange trio in many ways, was one that kept growing. And John felt compelled to tell us their names and also Jesus really loved this family. And so it's puzzling if we move to verse 6 that when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. The disciples then began arguing with Jesus because he says ultimately we are going back to Jerusalem they know that Jerusalem has become a dangerous place for all of them but Jesus said in verse 11 our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going there to wake him up and finally the disciples come to an agreement and Thomas speaks up and says fine if we're going back to Jerusalem then let's go together that we may die with him Maybe he means Lazarus, maybe he means Jesus, maybe he means both. But the disciples have in their mind, if we're going back to Jerusalem, we're probably going back to certain death, so let's all go die together. But that's not what happens in this story. This story is not one of death, but it is about the resurrection and the life. Verse 17, this begins where we read just a moment ago. Upon his arrival, Jesus found out that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That, that point, four days, is really important to understanding what happens later in the story. So keep that in your mind. We'll come back to it in a minute. But I love the picture we get here of Martha. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. So there were groups of people who were going back and forth to comfort Mary and Martha in their loss and then back to Jerusalem. And somewhere along the way, one of those groups got word to Martha that Jesus was on his way. And don't you love how Martha, she doesn't wait for Jesus to arrive. She goes out to meet him on the way. Immediately, as soon as she can get to Jesus, I imagine her getting toe-to-toe with him, looking him right in the face. And she says in verse 20, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I don't know how you hear this, but, but I hear an accusatory tone from Martha. And before we judge her too much on this, she is in this incredible state of grief. I don't think this is as much about her personality, which we've already seen is a little strong, probably one of those type A folks. She is grieving. She is deeply hurting And along with that grief came confusion, lack of understanding. Why did he wait so long? She, if she was this close to Jesus, must have known about some of the other miracles that people had seen, that Jesus doesn't actually have to be present for someone to be healed. We even read about this in John, that at at a word, even from a great distance, Jesus can bring life to a dying person. So Martha doesn't understand. As one of my former professors wrote, death is the most fearful enemy we face. It feels final. It hurts because we love people. And when they die, we are robbed of their lives. The more someone has sacrificed for us, the more we love them. And the more we have sacrificed for someone else, the more dear they are to us. The sisters here are 
grieving the loss of their brothers. And is not grief only an extension of love? As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, love always perseveres and love never fails. The more we grieve, the deeper our grief runs. Is it not love persevering as we grieve? I heard that quote recently, that that grief is love persevering, and, and I shared it in the early service, and somebody came up and said that apparently I quoted from the show WandaVision, some of you noticed it. That was just on last night. Is that correct? Friday night. Isn't it great when you are right on the cutting edge of pop culture and you don't even know it? I had no idea. Great quote, though. We understand why Martha's hurting. But in her grief, in her love, there is hope. She says in verse 22, But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask Jesus said to her your brother will rise again Martha answered I know I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day she's talking about what we read from Daniel this morning the belief that the Hebrew people had that yet there's death there's physical death and when that happens every person will go to the place of the dead but there will come a point when God will bring about a rising, a resurrection. And when that happens, as Daniel prophesied, there will be some who go to a place of life and a place of reward. And there will be others who go to a place where there is eternal contempt and shame and punishment. That's what the Jews believed. And so in this case, Martha says, well, I know, I know, someday we'll be reunited. Someday we'll be together. At the resurrection on the last day, my brother will rise again. And Jesus says, nope, that's not what I mean at all. Verse 25. This verse is not only the key of this chapter, but it is the turning point of this gospel. From this point on, everything in this gospel shifts from stories about Jesus' ministry and interaction with people, shifts to the road that leads to the cross. And here Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is yet another of the I am statements that we find throughout the Gospel of John. There are seven of them specifically where Jesus says, I am. And what's really important about these is not just the number seven and the consistency of the statements, but what Jesus actually says as recorded in the original language. Because in Greek, you can say, I am, with just one word. It's kind of like our word, I'm. I'm going to the store. But Jesus doesn't do that. In every one of the I am statements, he says, ego, I, me. He uses the pronoun I and then says, I am. He doesn't say, I'm. He quotes the same thing God said to his people in the Hebrew Scriptures. Again and again, he says, I am. I alone am. I and no other am. In this case, the resurrection and the life. But we've also seen him say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate, the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And we will see him say further, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
and I am the true vine. And your bonus is Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am, which is God's name. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. I and no other. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never truly die at all. And I want you to hear Jesus' question to Martha as a question to you and a question to me. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, will live. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? After all, that's the purpose of John's gospel. He's told us throughout, on multiple occasions, this person believed. This person said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. This person said, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. I believe Jesus is the Anointed One. And when we get to the very end of John, he says, I wrote all of this down. I told all of these stories exactly in this order and in this way so that you also might believe when jesus asks martha do you believe he's not just saying do you believe that i am the resurrection and the life for lazarus he means do you believe that i am the resurrection and the life for all and look at martha's confession and isn't it amazing that once again we have this confession this deep theological statement that doesn't come from one of the male disciples following Jesus around. They're not quite there yet. Certainly doesn't come from the most religious, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. It comes from a woman named Martha, and I would argue you will not find a, a better confession and a more amazing confession given the circumstances in all of the New Testament. Martha, whose brother was sick, who was waiting for Jesus to arrive and he didn't make it on time. Martha, whose brother had died, who is grieving, who's struggling, who's confused, who may even be filled with some doubts, now responds when Jesus says, do you believe this? I believe, but she says even further, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. This is the confession at the heart of the Gospel of John. Another person declaring before many others who should have seen it and known first, yes, I believe. But, this is Martha. There was still one more sister to deal with. As we move on to verse 28, when Mary comes to Jesus, I, I believe we see the heart of and the compassion, but also the indignation of Jesus on full display. Starting in verse 28, after she had said this, Martha had said this, she went back and she called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, 
place where she'd been before. And she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, just like Martha said. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come alongside also with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Now before we get to the shortest verse in the Bible, let's pause for a minute. Let's make sure we understand the scene and what's happening. Jesus is troubled. He's, he's upset. He's bothered. He's emotionally moved. Lots of different ways you can translate this. By what he sees among those people who are there to comfort Mary and Martha in their mourning. Yes, Mary and Martha are obviously grieving. But John wants us to remember that there are lots of other people there. And they've been coming back and forth to comfort them. One of the funeral customs of of ancient Jewish people was to gather around professional mourners people who made their living by being there after a death and mourning on behalf of the family even the poorest Jewish family would, would hire at least two flute players to come and play musical dirges during these days of grieving but they would also hire what was called a keener a wailing woman who when Mary and Martha in this example were, were out of energy, they, they didn't have it within them to, to mourn and to grieve out loud. The, the keener, the, the professional wailing woman would mourn and grieve and wail for everyone to hear. It seems from the context like Mary and Martha were not poor, but they were people of some means. So we imagine there were probably many professional mourners and grievers there. And when Jesus saw all of this, a better translation of that language he was deeply troubled he was outraged in fact the language that's used here is that of a horse who stomps his feet and snorts jesus is emotionally indignant and that is the moment when john says jesus wept and we imagine jesus weeping and crying and I do believe we see his love and compassion on display, but, but also the language tells us he was indignant at this scene of all of these people mourning and grieving. And there have been a lot of suggestions as to why Jesus wept. Some have said he was sad that his friend had died. Others have said he was frustrated by the lack of faith in Mary, Martha, or his disciples. Others said he was grieving with those who were grieving. He was saddened by the grief he saw in Mary and Martha and others. And I love good old St. Augustine. He was a true lover at heart. And Augustine said Jesus was showing his male disciples that it's okay for men to cry. Don't you love that? But you see in verse 36 and 37, people who were there also had their opinions. Some of the Jews said, look how he loved Lazarus. And others said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying as if Jesus is frustrated with himself that he was not able to prevent Lazarus' death? I love what Cyril of Alexandria, another ancient Christian, wrote. He said, the Jews thought that Jesus wept on account of the death of Lazarus, but in fact, he wept out of compassion for all humanity. Not mourning Lazarus alone, but all of humanity which is subject to death, having justly fallen under so great a penalty. In other words, Jesus is, is mourning because this, this scene is not how God intended 
the world to be for human beings. This is not the, the picture of Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden where, where God and, and human beings are still on perfectly good terms. This is the result of Genesis 3. This is the result of the fall, the consequences of sin, which lead to death. And as Jesus looks at this scene as in, and is indignant, he weeps out of deep disappointment for a world that has severely failed to live up to its intention and potential, as seen now in the face of suffering and death. One of the reasons I think this is really important is because sometimes we can be tempted to think when we have our own grief, our own suffering, when we are confused, when we doubt, when we don't understand why God did or did not do something, we can be tempted to think that God doesn't care, that he's somehow distant, and that he somehow doesn't feel. And if we begin to convince ourselves that God is that way, it's easy for us to try to become the same way. To try to, to sort of firm up our guts inside that we don't have to feel anything. To push down our emotions as far as we can. To become calloused and cold and distant. Just like we imagine God to be. In our own family, our family likes to joke with Aiden and I that we're dead inside. Can you believe that? Uh, that we are dead inside? Of course we're not dead inside. We're kind, compassionate men. But we have a family, especially my wife's family, that likes to cry a lot. And Aiden and I just happen to be a couple of guys who don't cry very often, almost never. And, and in the 830 service, my wife and my mother-in-law were sitting right over here. So I had to tread real lightly in this description. They're not here, so I'll tell you how it really is, okay? <laughs> they cry for nothing. And they're all, they're contagious criers. Once one starts crying, they're all crying. And it's funny because they'll even look at each other and say, I don't know why I'm crying. I don't know why I'm crying either. And then there's me and Aiden just like, are you done yet? <laughs> We're not dead inside. We, we just don't cry. And the reality is when we do, if you ever see us in a situation where that faucet gets turned on, we have a really hard time turning it off. So be careful. And when we cry, because we almost never do it, it ain't pretty, okay? But sometimes we have that temptation to think, God is distant, God doesn't care, God doesn't feel, and so maybe I should just be numb as well. In this case, Jesus has spoken the word, he's made the statement. And just like we see in so many of these stories that John tells, after Jesus makes the statement, after he says, I am the resurrection and the life, a sign follows. And in this story, the sign is the raising of Lazarus. Moving to verse 38. Jesus once more deeply moved, same language, deeply moved, said, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by now there's a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. I really hope that somebody in the room has a King James Version open right now, or maybe somewhere you, you memorize this in the King James, because this has to be one of the best verses in the King James Version, where Martha says here in the NIV, Lord, by this time there is a bad odor. The King James says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. <laughs> He's been there for four days. 
Now, I told you this idea of four days was important. Here's why. Because in the ancient world, there were a lot of beliefs related to what happens in the three days after a person dies. The Jews had beliefs, the Samaritans had beliefs, and the Greeks, the Gentiles, had beliefs about this. Very consistent that three days was significant. There were some who believed that three days was significant because it was a three days journey to the place of the dead. You'll even find some Jewish rabbis who write about Jonah. They say when Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, he actually died. What the scripture is trying to tell us is that he was on his journey in the belly of the fish to the underworld until God chose to send him back, brought life into his body. The fish spit him out before that journey was complete. There were others who believed that, that the three days was significant because the soul of a person hovered over their body. This is kind of creepy. Hovered over their body in the room or in the place where the body was for three days until decomposition set in when the soul finally went to the place of the dead. So John makes the point to tell us more than once. Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. The three-day period had expired. For Lazarus to come back to life now, there would be no doubt that it had to be a miracle. This couldn't be a resuscitation. The soul was already gone. The journey to the underworld was already complete. There are stories in the Hebrew Scriptures of Elijah and Elisha raising someone from the dead, but it happens within just a few hours or a couple of days. So again, it could easily be be misconstrued as a resuscitation but that's not what happens next what jesus does here is give us an image a picture that those who were there but those of us even two thousand years later who know this story will never forget what it looks like that jesus is the resurrection and the life jesus says to to martha yes he stinketh i inserted that but did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? He's talking to Martha, Mary, his disciples, just like with the blind man in John 9, and just like he said before he even came to Bethany. Watch and see. This will not end in death. It will end in the glory of God. Verse 41, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And then in a very strange way, Jesus says, I know that you always hear me, but I've said this for the benefit of the people standing here, so that they may believe, there it is again, that they may believe that you have sent me. In other words, Jesus says, I'm not saying this to impress them. And sometimes when we pray publicly in front of people, we get a little bit self-conscious. We're conscious about other people around but if we learn that discipline of corporate prayer, we also then are considerate. We pray with language that brings people in and expresses to God some of the needs, not just our own needs, but of, of those around us. In this case, Jesus says, I said this for one reason, that those standing around would see the Son's relationship with the Father. That they would see that God is not distant, He is not cold, that even Jesus in His own emotion was moved to call upon God's power. And in that intimate relationship between the Father and the Son, as Jesus is going to pray later, we can experience that same intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. 
And so Jesus says, I don't want there to be any doubt that what happens next is a direct result of my request to you and that you have heard me. Verse 43. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. I love what some Christians of the past have said. That Jesus used Lazarus' name. He called him by name for a reason. Because all around Bethany, in the hills around Jerusalem, there were caves. Lots of caves. Some were natural, some were man-made, where people had buried their dead. They'd been there for decades, sometimes centuries. If you go visit Jerusalem today, you can still see some of those caves on the hillsides. And some earlier Christians have said, Jesus called Lazarus by name because if he hadn't, all of those caves would have given up their dead. If he hadn't said Lazarus, there would have been a bunch of dead people coming out because of the power of his voice, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And he came out. Some said this was another miracle, that he could walk all bound up in his grave clothes. And somehow Jesus restored life to his body. He restored life to his flesh. He must have shot him with some sort of a divine Febreze or something like that. But the story is complete and total resurrection. It is life. It is not a story that ends in death. What we see here in John 11 is something from beyond. And this is a defining moment in John's gospel. After saying, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus raised Lazarus. And some, if you finish out this chapter, some believe, just like we keep seeing, they believe and they receive life too from the resurrection and the life. But there are others who still, even after all of this, choose death. They have that choice laid before them as God had said, to his people long ago i lay before you the choice life or death and even after the power of god raised lazarus from the dead they still choose death and at this point many of those were the religious leaders who decided the only way to deal with jesus from this point forward is to kill him because we have no other answers left in fact that's what verse 53 says so from that on that day on they they being the pharisees chief priests the teachers of the law they plotted to take his life because for those who choose death who continue to refuse to choose life at some point they run out of options and here the religious leaders are out of options but as we bring this to a close i want to just come back real quickly to the what i consider to be the unconventional nature of this family this trio here you have in in, in what is very much a man's world martha seems to be the head of the household probably the owner of the house the estate mary is the one who who anointed jesus with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair who does that then she sat at jesus feet being taught as a disciple and then there's lazarus the man of the house who never says a word lazarus is only famous as the guy who died who stank and who came back to life and took off his grave clothes and yet, the reminder about this unconventional family is that Jesus loved them. 
And if nothing else gets through today, I hope you hear the resurrection and the life. But I hope you also hear that Jesus loves you. That God is not cold. He is not distant. He does feel. And he loves you. And it's out of his love that, that he raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's in Lazarus' resurrection that we have a picture, a clear picture of something from beyond that reminds us of our own salvation. As Nicolette demonstrated this morning, when we are baptized, this is a symbol that we've experienced the resurrection and the life, that we have a new birth, that we are a new creation, that we were once dead in our sins, but that Christ has raised us to new life. Amen? We use that language because of the literal death and tomb and grave and the resurrection that can only come to us, the raising to life that only the life of Jesus can provide. He is the resurrection and the life. And so I ask you this morning, is your life and your heart filled and surrounded with life or the things of death? And if you feel like you are, are surrounded with a cloud of darkness and death, I pray this morning that Christ will cut through that and that you will see him as the true resurrection and life. And that he will drown out all the noise around you so that you also, we also would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God.